Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here today. Well, let's pray and get to work in our text. Lord Jesus, there are a few texts in the Bible that are more alarming than this one. And there are a few texts in which we need your illumination more than what we need in this one, because what hangs in the balance here today is literally heaven and hell, righteousness and unrighteousness, judgment or redemption. And it is often, particularly in regards to this text, those who are in church that need to hear it, even though they might not think that they do. And so that's why we need your help today. Because we need you to get below, underneath, and through the layers of our our cultural Christianity. The habit of coming on Sunday, as good as it is, our polite listening, but never doing anything about it. Lord, I pray today that you would literally open the eyes of people who are spiritually blind but do not know that they are. I pray you would not shake one person's faith who's genuine, but I pray for those, Lord, whose faith is simply words, that you would shake them to the very foundation of their being and then graciously rebuild them. So, Lord, your word has done that through centuries, and we are praying you would do it now here at College Park. Lord, remind us that your word tells us that only if you are saved. And what does that mean? And how do we respond? Oh, Lord, give us grace for these very sober and important truths. And we ask this in your name, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Since June, we've been looking at the great sermon of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. And we've learned that Jesus' primary target in the midst of this sermon has been to expose what I have called veneer religion. Veneer religion is a kind of spirituality that looks righteous. It does righteous things. It agrees to righteous truths. It sits in buildings where righteous truth is declared, but it's all a veneer the inner workings of a veneer religious person are that he or she is not who they really claim to be. It's a cultural religion. A religion based upon what you think you know or what family you were born into or spiritual things that you do or what things you don't do. Rather than a relationship with God based upon a change of heart personal brokenness over your own sin, a lifetime of repentance, and a perpetual state of always bearing fruit. Veneer religion often sounds like this. I I grew up in a Christian home. I went to Sunday school all my life. I was baptized when I was seven. Veneer religion sometimes sounds like this. Well, I've, I've always been a Christian. Sometimes veneer religion sounds like, well, look, Mark, I know you're not supposed to do those things, those big sins. But look, once saved, always saved, pal. Or, I know I'm saved. I'm just 
not living like it right now. But I know I'm saved. I got a date in the front of my Bible. I know that I'm saved. I'm just, here's an old school word for you, I'm just backslidden. See, veneer religion, friends, is knowing the facts about who Jesus is, being able to recite certain doctrinal truths, maybe even being involved in ministry to other people, while at the same time not being a genuine believer. You know that can happen, don't you? The scary reality is this, that every church, including ours, is filled with self-deceived people who look and smell religious, who act religious, but at the end of the day aren't genuinely converted. It's a sober reality that there can be an appearance of godliness, 2 Timothy 3, 5, but to deny its power. Meaning, there's all of the trappings of Christianity, but at the end of the day, the power, the spirit, the authority of the risen Christ, the fruit that's supposed to come out of one's life, isn't there. And rather than deal with that issue, people who are guilty of an irreligion would rather go back to some historical thing that they did in the past. And when you push on their life, they push back with things like, how dare you question whether or not I'm a genuine believer? You see, we live in a culture that doesn't like evaluation. We live in the midst of a society that doesn't like to have people question if you are real. And yet this sermon cuts right to that and asks us, are you the real deal? And that's an important question. It's an eternal question. One that relates to the state of your soul. Richard Owen Roberts, the probably the most prominent living authority on revival, was once asked what would happen if revival broke out in the United States. His answer instinctively was, millions of church people would be saved. And that's true. So my aim today is to lovingly ask you, to plead with you, if I could even beg you, to consider if you are genuinely converted. I don't mean if you prayed a prayer. I don't mean if you walked an aisle. I don't mean if if you know the facts of the gospel. I I mean that you are genuinely, genuinely the real deal. A follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6 or 8.16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And my aim today is to strengthen those of you who know by the Spirit of God that you are the children of God. And my goal for those of you who do not know is to ask you to take careful inventory. And for those of you who are self-deceived, candidly, my goal is to shake you at the core Because your soul is on the line. To do anything else, candidly, would not be loving. And it wouldn't be to deal with this text honestly. The Sermon on the Mount comes down to this question. Are you real? Are you real? Do you really know Him? Or do you just know facts about Him? Do you know Him as Lord and Savior? Do you know Him as King and as sovereign in your life or do you know him as just a historical real person or a cross that hangs in a church or it's sunday so i just go to services 
let me assure you, I'm not suggesting that you can lose your salvation. I, I believe unequivocally in the perseverance of the saints or eternal security, whatever you want to call it. I believe that if you're genuinely converted, no one can take you out of God's hand. My concern is not about losing salvation. My concern is whether or not you've got it in the first place. That's my burden. So Jesus ends this great sermon with a call to choose. And what he does here is he lays out to his listeners two gates, two ways, two groups, two kinds of trees, two kinds of fruits, two kinds of builders, two foundations, two houses. Over and over and over, two, 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 two. He ends his sermon with a crystal clear clarion call to make a choice and to think carefully about what you will choose. Jesus is about to call for a decision. He's about to end the sermon in a big way. And verse 12 captures what is often referred to as the golden rule. It becomes the singular ethic of what he has talked about over these last chapters. The overriding ethic. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. This is the law and the prophets. Meaning, this is the thing. This is the ethic. This is what it is in terms of following God's heart. Why does Jesus say this? Well, it's sort of a repeat of what he said in chapter 5 and verse 20. Remember that? That startling statement, it went like this. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That statement was meant to make his listeners go, Whoa. It was meant to shock them. His, his warning was meant to startle them because no one was more righteous from a human perspective than the scribes and Pharisees. No one had it together like they did. And so Jesus, when saying, you got to be more righteous than these people... It's meant to be a bit alarming. Reminds me of a friend of mine who was a pastor and he was working through this issue of genuine conversion and after a series of messages on this subject, his wife realized that she wasn't genuinely converted. This is the pastor's wife. So they had some small children in the home and, and she came to Christ, came to a genuine relationship with Jesus. And they sat down with their children and explained it to them that mommy wasn't genuinely converted and she had just come to Christ. And her children responded, Mom, if you weren't saved, then who is? And that's the response meant to be invoked in Matthew 5.20. If they're not okay, then who is? Jesus wants a genuine righteousness. You see, the problem with the religious leaders was that their religion didn't come from a work of God in the heart. So they thought they kept the law, but they were actually breaking it. And that's why Jesus gives this summary. The summary is the heart of the ethic, and that is that a changed heart leads to a changed life. So a changed heart, a change on the inside leads, must lead to a changed life. And real religion and a summary of the law essentially are to treat others in the way that you want to be treated. So Paul in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14 says, loving one's neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. A change of heart results in a changed life. 
The conclusion then, in the summary ethic, as it relates to the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, should be rather obvious, and it's this, that if you claim to be religious, but you're not filled with love for others, then you're not really religious. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you don't do what he says, you are not a disciple of his. No matter how much you pound your foot or put your fist on the table or point to a date in the front of your Bible, if you claim to know Jesus, but you don't follow him, you are not his disciple and you don't know him. You can claim to believe certain truths. You can say whatever you want, but if your actions, attitude, choices, and the fruit of your life doesn't line up, there's a problem. And the problem is that actions, actions reveal who you really are. That's the point of this sermon. Now, Jesus is going to draw all of this to a close with three compelling warnings. What follows in verses 13 to 27 are three warnings, and in those three warnings there are 14 contrasts. I mean, you get the point. Jesus wants you to know, you've got to choose, you've got to choose. There's the narrow gate, the wide gate, the difficult way, the broad way, life versus destruction, few versus many, true versus false prophets, sheep versus wolves, good versus bad trees, good fruit, bad fruit, life, judgment, doing the Father's will, saying, Lord, Lord, a wise builder, a foolish builder, he who hears and obeys, who doesn't hear, obey, who's someone who's built on the rock, who's built on the sand, and someone who can withstand the storm, and somebody who will be devastated by the storm. Fourteen contrasts. Why does he do that? He does that so he can press deep into the reality of what the right response should be to this sermon. And in doing so, he asks us three questions. Here they are. The first is, what path are you on? In other words, what gate did you come through? How did you get here? And where are you really today in terms of what path you're on? How do you think life works? And how are you living on this particular path Broad or narrow, which is it? The second question is, who are you really? Who are you really? The third question is, what are you going to do? So the first question, what path are you on, relates to the gate. Verse 13 and 14. Look at it. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide And the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So there's two gates. There's a um, a wide gate, and there's also a narrow gate. The wide gate has three characteristics. It's easy, it leads to destruction, and there are many who enter by it. Now, you have to feel this. Jesus intends an image that is rather scary. The image is such that this path is very popular. There are droves of people on this path. And it seems to be the right path because as they're walking along the path, there's so many people looking around. Look at all these people here. So this must be the right path because look at all the people. All of us can't be wrong. And this path is easy, and it's enjoyable, and it's satisfying, and you're walking along the life, and people on the other path are saying, hey, you're on the wrong path. You're like, yeah, look at your path. It's like really hard, pal. Ours is easy. Yeah, like we're on the wrong path. You are. Wake up. Look at all of us over here. How could we be so wrong? 
And the reality is what Jesus is showing us here is the travesty that the people on this broad path full of lots of people with lots of ease and a very simple path that they're following, they don't know that it ends not at a dead end, but at a cliff. And they can't see what everybody else can see in this scene, and that is that as they're walking along having a great time, they don't realize that there's a lot of people coming in the front end, but they're falling off the back end. And the end of this path is destruction. Jesus aims to point a tragic picture of a vast number of people who are following the crowd, doing what everyone else is doing, taking an easy and enjoyable path, but they don't realize that the end of this path is impending doom. The picture of the other gate is different. It's called the narrow gate. It means that it's hard to find. It's not easy to see. In fact, it's easy to miss. The idea here is that there's this wall and there's this really large welcoming gate that's very easy to see. Enter here and all these people are streaming in and over on the side of the wall, hardly even noticeable, is this little sliver of an entrance that you could hardly even squeeze through and if you didn't go over and look at it, you wouldn't even know it's there. The narrow gate is easy to miss. It's nondescript. If you weren't looking for it, you wouldn't find it. And the other thing about this gate is that once you're in, the path of the, from the, that leads from the gate is a hard way, which means that it's filled with challenges and difficulties, that it requires intentional steps that compared to the broad way, this way is tough, it's hard. In fact, on it, you would be convinced that it's not the right path unless you knew in the bottom of your soul, no, this is the right path. Circumstances alone would lead you to choose the broad path, but... Something else causes you to choose this narrow gate and this narrow way. Third, the passage tells us that this gate leads to eternal life. Unlike the broad path that leads to destruction, this one leads to eternal life. And the fourth characteristic, and I find this to be one of the most frightening statements in all the Bible. Verse 14, and those who find it are few. Few. In other words, the vast majority of people who aren't looking, who aren't careful, the vast majority of people just going to go through life like everybody else does, will miss this gate. So, so what is Jesus, what is he saying here? He's commanding that you enter through the narrow gate. He's not just telling you that there's two gates. He's commanding that you enter through the narrow gate. He's telling you there's one gate, and he's commanding it. The the, the tense in the original language is a decisive choice. He's warning us that there's two paths and telling us, commanding us to choose and to choose carefully, and that we would choose the narrow one. So what is the gate? The gate is a picture of Jesus and Jesus alone. Any other way besides Jesus does not lead to life. It only leads to destruction. It means that Jesus is claiming exclusivity in his ability to bring forgiveness to people so that they can have a right relationship with God, the Father. Jesus is telling us here that to follow the crowd on an easy path of just this sort of sense. It doesn't really matter what you believe. All roads leads to God. When somebody dies, everyone goes to heaven. Jesus is saying, no, that's not right. 
He's telling us in John 14, 6, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but by me. There are not multiple ways to get to God. There are not multiple ways to be a Christian. There are not multiple ways to be forgiven. There is only one. And it's trusting in Christ. When I was in high school, we had an outside speaker come to our Bible class. And she was trying to convince us that all religions led to God. And she described that that religion is sort of like an elephant. And Christians go up to the elephant and they they feel the elephant's legs. And so they, they think that God is just like the trunk of a tree. Because they're feeling the legs and and. And Jews are those who go to the front and they, they feel the trunk of the elephant and they, they think he's like a, like a big snake. That's the, their image of God. And, and Muslims are, 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 they go up to God and they, they, they feel the elephant's uh, side so they think he's a big wall. And she says, what she said was that all religions are basically worshiping the same God. They just see him and feel him from different vantage points. There's a couple problems with that. The first, newsflash, God isn't an elephant. That's the first one. The second one is, is that Jesus didn't say anything like that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So you can't be a Christian and think that there's other ways to get to God. There's only one. It's through a personal trust in Jesus. To enter the narrow gate means, and that's just not knowing that, it means... Entering the narrow gate means that God has given you the gift of repentance, that you have determined that the ruling of your life has been turned over to this Lord Jesus. Entering the narrow gate means that you really understand who Jesus is and its effects on your life. It means that He calls you to believe on Him and to follow Him. And it means that for the rest of your life, you pursue a life that's been transformed by Christ and that narrow path is a path of repentance. And that's why it's hard. See, there are are many people today who know about Jesus. They they know facts about who He is. Some of you may have prayed to Him, asked Him to be your Savior. But the reality is, if you look deeply in your heart, that's it. It's a set of facts and information. It hasn't transformed your life. You're still fundamentally the same person. You just added Understanding about who Jesus was to your life. You took him and just add, made, made one and then took another and just made Jesus an addition to your life. And the problem is it doesn't work like that. Entering the narrow gate means that you fully trust in Christ such that the trajectory of your life is fully changed forever. In other words, you can't live on the broad path while claiming to believe in the narrow path. Nor can you claim to be on the narrow path while you live like you act as though you live on the broad path. You can't have it both ways. You must choose. And that's why Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. The question is, which path are you really on? In other words, who are you really trusting in? My fear is that there are, are, there are millions of people in church all over our country who know facts about who Jesus is. They know that He died. They know that He was the Son of God. They even believe that He is the Son of God. But the problem is they don't really know Jesus. They can't know Him because of how they really live. You can't live in a broad path and claim that you believe in the narrow path. You can't have it both ways. They know about the narrow way. 
and they think that knowing about it and believing in it equals entering through it, and it doesn't. That's the gate warning. The second warning is the warning of fruits. Or the question, who are you really? The issue is, what kind of fruit then is coming out of your life? So you tell me you believe in Jesus. Great. The next question has to be, so what fruit is coming out? Or how are you different? Or what do you see inside of your soul that's been changed by the empowering work of Christ? In verse 15, the first fruit warning comes in regards to false prophets. Jesus says that there are people who look like sheep, but they're really ravenous wolves. However, in this text, false prophets are not his point. Fruit is his point. That's why Jesus in verse 16, look at it, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. In other words, how do you test a prophet? You don't test a prophet by the words that he says. You don't test a prophet by the things that come out of his mouth. You test a prophet by the stuff coming out of his life. So he uses the prophets as an example of the fact that things are known by their fruits. Like trees, which is the second point from nature. He wants us to see that that the production of fruit is both natural and normal. That it makes no sense to find grapes on thorn bushes or figs on thistles. A couple weeks ago, my kids and I went to Stucky Farms. It was a great experience. We had to walk around and get our bellies full of apples and all sorts of different tastes. And it would have been crazy to come home and have my wife say, How was it? And I was like, That's stupid. There's no... I went up to this tree, it said apple trees, and I wanted to find some grapes. No no grapes on that apple tree. What kind of place is this? I mean, after all, I'd be like a one-stop shopping. Grapes and oranges all on one tree. That's how they should run that place. If I was in charge of Stucky Farms, that's what they'd do. He'd be like, well, come on, Mark. Apples, trees produce apples. That's just the way it is. Fig trees produce figs. Grapevines produce grapes. I mean, unless you live close to a nuclear power plant, that's the way it's supposed to work, right? <laughs> And what Jesus is saying here is that good trees produce good fruit. In our property in Michigan, we had about 100 apple trees on our property. And I could tell you when an apple tree was starting to die. I could see it in the fall. The apples were smaller. They were fewer in number. And it wasn't but a year or two later and the whole tree had died. It was an indicator of health. A tree that doesn't bear fruit is no longer useful. And so Jesus says it's cut down and destroyed. The implication of judgment here should be so obvious. The point of the illustration from nature and the point from prophets should be clear. You will recognize them by their fruits. By using both false prophets and fruits, Jesus aims to show us that the test of whether or not something is real is by what kind of fruit it bears. Hear me. Words and talk are cheap. Anybody in this room can say anything they want. Anyone can claim to believe anything. The only real evidence is a changed life or spiritual fruit. So you can't say, no matter how much you say it with your words, the reality is your actions give an indication of what's really going on inside the soul. So if you live like you're on the broad path, 
At least have the courage to acknowledge, I'm on the broad path. Please don't play the game of saying, oh, I live on the broad path. I just believe in Jesus. I'm just one of these Christians that I live over here, but I believe all that stuff. No, you don't. It's baloney. Balonos in the Greek. (laughs) It's ridiculous to say you believe this and then claim to believe the other. It doesn't work. It's like an apple tree claiming to be a fig tree when the apple tree is clearly bearing apples. Words and religious activity are not enough. Some of you would say, well, wait a minute. But I, I, I do all sorts of things. I give, I serve. I've even, seen, I've even seen people come to faith in Christ through my ministry. There's a pastor friend of mine that I know who was serving in a support staff in a role in a church. He led two people to Christ. And then a year later, himself came to Christ. He would tell you, you know, Mark, the crazy thing about that, as we would talk about this, is he said, I knew how to lead someone to Christ, and I was lost as lost could be. So Jesus isn't done with us because there's another fruit issue And it's to those who might suggest that they have religious activity. That they would say, look, my religious activity is my fruit. I I, I do all sorts of things. I've seen God work. I teach a Sunday school class. I've raised children who are are following the Lord. I I serve. I'm I'm involved in ministry. I'm, I'm pouring my life. And people are changing the things around me. I can see, I've tasted, I've seen God's power. I'm the real deal. To this Jesus says, not everyone, verse 21, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but one who does the will of my Father. Notice the focus, one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The problem here is that the person claiming to know Christ and to do things on his behalf was busy doing all sorts of things in the name of Jesus. And the spiritual success that was around them was leading them to believe that they really knew Jesus. And they assume that because they're near spiritual things, because they do spiritual things and they see spiritual things, that they're spiritual. And Jesus says, not so fast. I don't even know you. So you can read all the books you want on godly parenting. You can raise kids. You can have the model home. And the reality is you don't know Jesus. Jesus says the criteria is doing the will of the Father. And so he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Just just think of this statement. He calls these people workers of lawlessness. They've been doing ministry. They've been prophesying, casting out demons, and seeing miracles done. And yet Jesus says that they're workers of lawlessness. Why does he say this? Because here's why. Ministry, even effective ministry, religious activity, even effective religious activity without knowing Jesus is lawlessness to him. It's, It's lawlessness because it's devoid of a personal relationship with him even if God chose to use you in spite of your lost condition. So Jesus would ask us, who are you really? Take your words and your religious activity and just set those aside for a moment. 
the bigger and more important question is this. Do you really know Jesus? Do you really know him? And then the second question is, do you really have good fruit? Do you really have the evidence that your life has been changed? You can't hide behind spiritual activity anymore. You can't hide behind what other people have done or what they haven't done. You can't hide in the trap of comparison. You may even have the right credentials. You do the right things. You don't do the wrong stuff. And that doesn't make you real, though. You see, just because you have seen people change or you've seen spiritual miracles take place while you're in the room or even through your own life, it doesn't mean that you know him. Just because you have a date in the front of the Bible, just because you know of a major experience in your life, if there's no present fruit, you've got to ask, am I real? What fruit? What evidence? The warning here should be clear so that no one misses it. And it's this, that true spiritual identity is determined not by what one says, but by who you really are. True spiritual identity is determined not by the spiritual things you've done, but by the Savior you know. So the gate test is what path are you on? Who are you really trusting? The fruit test is, come on, what's really coming out of your life? I mean, if you know Jesus, if you really know Him, do you think that this junk that's coming out of your heart and these actions that don't fit, with, do you think this would really come out of a life that's committed to following Jesus? And for some of you, that could be the thing that just wakes you up and says, I've got to change, because I believe in Jesus. doesn't mean we're all perfect, but it means that now you say, you know what, back on the right path. And for others of you, it means that you have to deal honestly that the evidence of your life, the big picture, long-term trajectory, is this was a head knowledge. It never got in your heart. The final warning relates to the foundation. And the question is, what are you going to do? The final warning is about, so you've heard this. Like you've heard so many sermons in your lifetime. Like you've heard so many truths. In fact, you probably know how to sing this song. right? The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. You know the, the problem with that little kid's ditty? This little story about a wise and a foolish man is about judgment. It ought to make kids like shake in their Sunday school socks when they're singing it. It should. Because that's why it's given. It's given as a warning. It's a warning about letting it go in one ear and out the other. It's a warning about just listening to these words and saying, oh, that's nice. Now what about the NFL today? That's nice. What's for lunch at MCL today? That's nice. I'm ready for my Sunday afternoon nap. It's this domestication of the words of Jesus where they never get beyond hearing and they're just disseminated again. You just take them in and, and then they go right out. Which is why Jesus says... But the wise man is the one who hears the word and does them. It's not just hearing, but it's the man who hears the word and does them. And who will he be like? He'll be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. 
So he builds his home on a firm foundation, a solid bedrock. He didn't take any shortcuts. He took his time. He made sure his home was built the right way. And the result is stability, safety, and survival when the storm comes. Now what do you think the storm is? The storm, friends, is the judgment of God. It's the all-consuming gaze of an all-knowing God that knows every element of your heart, every wicked deed you've ever done, every sinful thought you've ever thought, and as He unfolds your life before you, the storm of His judgment comes, and the only one who lasts in that storm of judgment is the one who knows this. I know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. He transformed my heart and soul. He made me a new person, and my life was changed by Him. And to those who would just say, I know Jesus. And that's it. The storm of judgment is devastating. The foolish man is not so fortunate. He builds his house upon the sand. He doesn't dig down. And digging down is not just belief. It's the digging down of genuine repentance, of saying, I've heard this and I will do something. You see, you haven't really heard who Jesus is if there's no matching repentance. All you've heard is facts. Even the demons believe in God. And the question is, what's the difference between you and a demon? They know he's the Son of God. They know he's the Son of God better than most of us know he's the Son of God. The question is, what is the difference? And this foolish man takes the easy but dangerous way. His house encounters the same storm, the same flood, the same winds, the same combined pummeling. However, the outcome is entirely different. Verse 27, it fell and great was the fall of it. So both houses experienced the same storm and only one was able to withstand. Both houses probably looked really similar in terms of their construction on the outside. As you drove by, you'd probably not notice a whole lot of difference like when you come into church and everybody looks like they're okay. Not everyone in this room is okay. And just because all the external trappings in terms of how you look and how you act and the stuff you can recite and all the scripture verses you can quote and all the things you can say doctrinally, there may be a very clear reality within your heart that you know today that you are a foolish man building your house on the sand. Jesus uses this analogy to press home the point That there is a choice that every one of us must make. And here it is. What will you do with the words of Jesus? What will you do now that you've heard these words from him? What will you do with the word few? You're not ignorant anymore. You, You can't claim you didn't know. You can't claim, I never heard a message about easy believism. I never heard a message about being self-deceived. I never heard a message about veneer religion. You've heard it now. You've heard it. The issue is now not about information. The issue is about obedience. To know Jesus is Lord, to know that he calls us to repentance, to know that he calls us to evaluate who we really are is a sober call. And Jesus is warning us that knowledge alone results in disaster. True knowledge of of Him will result in matching actions or the knowledge of Him isn't real. So let me bottom line this. After ten messages in which you have heard, 
Get real, get real, get real, get real, get real. Please get real, get real, get real, get real. Last one. Are you going to? Are you going to get real? Or are you just going to keep floating through life? The response of the crowd in verse 28 and 29 is stunning. And when Jesus heard these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. His words were different than they had heard before. And there was something here that created astonishment. The word astonished means to be, to be beside oneself, to be shocked to be overwhelmed, and candidly, to be a bit scared. It's, that word is used for moments when people know, oh my goodness, God is here. It's used for those moments when a person is speaking or doing something, and you know this is not about that person up there. This is a conduit. The heavens have opened, and it's God speaking through that. That's a man up there, but his words are from the living God to my heart. It is God who is speaking. It is this understanding of, oh my goodness, God is speaking to me. And these people encountered supernatural truth. They felt it. They saw it. They knew it. It was God. I remember as a 13-year-old boy hearing a message like this. It was as though the auditorium was almost tipping. And I could feel the sense of God just pulling me and drawing me. And there was the sense, even though this guy was up there speaking, it was God who was unfolding my heart and saying to me, Now is the time, Mark. And that is what I hope and pray you will sense today. That God is the one who is speaking directly to you. I'm praying that you would no longer be passive, no longer sit on a fence, no longer think you can push this issue off, no longer use the, the categories that you've used in the past to, to justify your lack of fruit, but to realize that the storm of God's judgment is always approaching and only those who know Jesus, I mean really know Him, I mean really know Him, are truly safe. So the question is this, Come on, what path are you on? Have you put your trust in Christ alone for the give, for forgiveness of your sins? Are, are you trusting in Him for the redemption of your soul? Do you really know who He is? Are you trusting in Him? The second question is, who are you really? What does your fruit say? What does the evidence of your life indicate? Has your life really been changed by Jesus? I'm not suggesting you're going to be perfect, but I'm saying, are you different today? Is there any evidence... Or are you in this camp where you just tolerate and, and convince yourself that these sins that are in your life, despite what the Bible says, that they should be gone from your life, you, no, I'm just going to live here because I just want my stuff and Jesus too. You can't have Jesus too. It's Jesus all or Jesus none. And the final question is, what are you going to do? Jesus' words must be heard, but that can't be it. Not again, not this Sunday. 
Not another message to file, file away. They, they, they have to be obeyed or you've not heard them. And so my question to you would be, do, do, you, do you sense that God is speaking to you? Do, do you know what he's asking you to do? Do you sense that he's graciously, lovingly drawing you? And do you hear that his, his, his firm warning is not meant out of spite or hate? No, on the contrary, it is the most loving thing in the world for Jesus to tell religious people that it's not going to work if they're just religious. The call of this sermon is to get real and the question is will you you've got to choose and i pray that you will choose wisely and carefully and here's why because only a few are truly saved only a few are truly saved. And therefore, we have to choose carefully because of the sober warning of Jesus about the problem of veneer religion. He calls us to get real. Lord Jesus, would you do your work Please, as only you can, I pray that you would take human words and make them life and light into the dark hearts of people who know who Jesus is but make a mockery of him by their words that aren't matched with their fruit. Would you bring them today to full repentance, please? Lord, I pray that you would open eyes of people to see the reality of who you are and that you'd cause some, empower some, Lord, today to become real Father, we thank you that you alone are worthy of our worship. You alone are worthy of obedience. And that you, through the person and work of Jesus, made it possible for us to have a new life. And so I pray that we would be a people who are not only hearers, but also doers of your word. So, Father, implant your words in us for your glory and our good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.